Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to a bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. It was the worst 20 minutes of my life. I thought that was the end. We uh, are disappointed and angry that this happened. We do know that everyone on the island was affected in some way. Very frightening, traumatized, scared. Didn't know if if I was going to die this second or die in the next five minutes. It was horrifying. It came across on our phones that there was a missile that was going to hit and nobody knew what to do. I filled up pails of water and I filled up the bathtub just so we would have water. I got cotton clothes on so that way if there was hot air or fire, it wouldn't melt my skin. Then I sat in the bathtub that I made for myself and cried. I called my mom. She wouldn't let me hang up on the phone with her. She said, I want to be here just in case it happens. And it was really sad. A ballistic missile threat to Hawaii. That was totally fake. False. In error. Buck Sexton here with you all. Thanks for joining me in the Freedom Hut. Uh, we have got much to discuss today, my friends. So this is what happened. That, that was some reaction to a text message that got sent out to people in Hawaii by a state government agency. And here's what the message said. Emergency alert. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Now, I'm not somebody who I think is prone to getting overly uh, anxious or, or scared or freaked out about the possibility of a terror attack or any number of things out there. I used to work in counterterrorism. And so if, if I saw something that you know, looked like it was fake to me, I'd probably ignore it. This was an official message. And Hawaii, it is believed, is within missile range of North Korea. Nuclear range, who knows? But certainly within missile range. And whatever we think we know about North Korea could also be wrong. And if I had gotten this message, I would have been uh, quite anxious about it. Understandably so. I think anybody would be. Now, people already are calling for greater accountability and saying we need to make sure this never happens again. I understand all that. And I agree. This can't happen again. Because let's just start with a, a, a one thing that I think has not nearly gotten enough uh, attention in the media. This happened in Hawaii, which is a relatively uh, small state in terms of population. And it happened on a Saturday. And it didn't go out to everybody in the island. Only some, it only went over, over some text message carriers, I forget which ones. And they tried to sound the alarm, literally sound alarms in Hawaii. And only some of them went off on the streets, you know, ambulance kind of uh, alarm sounds. 
And so it could have been much more of a panic than it even was. Imagine if this had happened for a moment, if you were in the state of, well, here in New York City or in Philadelphia or in Dallas or you you name it, where you might have had panic in densely packed civilian areas. It could have been at a at a football stadium. It could have been at, and, and people could have been hurt. And the, the possibility of widespread panic turning into loss of life is very, very real. In fact, recently, when the wildfires were uh, burning in California, state authorities there chose not to send, in at least one instance, messages out because they weren't sure which direction the wildfire was going in. And they also didn't want to possibly tell people to evacuate only to put them in the path of a wildfire by trying to get out of a certain area. And they didn't want to further congest egress routes without knowing where the fire was going to burn. So there are some complexities here. There are people who are paid at the state government level to try and handle this stuff so that we can all have some hope of getting out of a other of an otherwise life and death situation. Uh, but people are clearly upset about this. Tulsi Gabbard, who is among, well, I was going to say, among my favorite Democrats. Why? Because I like her policies. She said... Well, no, that's actually not really true. She's just kind of charming uh, in her own way. But uh, she said the following about this. And our leaders have failed us. Donald Trump is taking too long. He's not taking this threat seriously. And there's no time to waste. We've got to get rid of this nuclear threat from North Korea. We've got to achieve peace. Not play politics, but achieve peace. Because this is literally life and death that is at stake for the people of Hawaii and the people of this country. So it's about getting peace with North Korea. I mean, sure, we would like to achieve peace with North Korea, but North Korea is the problem there, not us. And as much as getting a lecture from a Democrat rep out in Hawaii may make the left feel kind of uh, of warm and fuzzy about all things, this isn't all that that useful. Uh, This is not all that helpful. The media did manage quite quickly to tie Trump into this. I think there are a lot of people out there, and I don't want to be flip about this. I think there are a lot of people. Oh, he's going to be flip about it. Who are happy that this at least didn't happen while President Trump was watching Fox and Friends. And instead it happened when he was out on the golf course and he was informed about this by, by layers of advisors and such. Um, I. I, I think he's being flip about it. Well, you know, he's not watching Fox and Friends. You could do that to anyone at any time. You know, oh, well, you know, not just sitting there, you know, it's it's not like Buck sitting there in his sweatpants eating chicken nuggets at one o'clock in the morning because he didn't make himself dinner because he was working on a history podcast, blah, blah, blah. I mean, yeah, that, that could have happened. I did have chicken nuggets for dinner at one point this weekend. But... Jake Tapper is out there saying, oh, it's a good thing Trump. Yeah, because let's focus on whether Trump is the problem here or not. Um, How could this happen? You know, look, people ask me this. Look, you're working counterterrorism at the, uh, I had a couple of friends ask me, you're working counterterrorism at the NYPD. I was like, look, 
I don't know. I don't know how the Hawaii ballistic in, incoming ballistic missile system uh, warning uh, works. I, I have no idea. I'm not gonna lie. You know, I, I wish I knew about all these things. I wish I knew about some of the other government stuff that goes on. But no, I have no idea how Hawaii's system works. So I, I can't give you some inside analysis of whether or not Hawaii has a bad system, other than the fact that clearly. It's not a very good one. Here's what uh, the Hawaii Emergency Emergency Management spokesperson, I, I suppose. I, this is what he, uh, Vern Miyagi is the gentleman. This is what he said about it. It's a human error. There is there is a screen that says, "Are you are you sure you want to do this?" Okay, again, that's already in place. Now we had one person human error, and that thing was was pushed anyway. So, so they not only triggered the alert, they also pressed yes? Yes. There was a two-step process. Yeah, there is a two- yes in both situations. Right. Now, I think it's fair to ask. I think it's fair to ask. Uh, okay, if it was just a button, somebody could push the button. You know, you're not paying attention. You got your coffee. You know, you throw a little... You know, non-dairy coconut creamer in there, maybe a little stevia if you're feeling fancy. And, you know, you knock it over and all of a sudden, oh, whoops, and you, you hit the button. But if you hit one button and then there's another button that you have to hit in order to make it go, I, mm, a little strange. I, I can't go as far as to say that a person would intentionally do this because I really can't off the, off the top of my head. I can't think of why somebody would want to do this. I've seen a lot of outrage about how the government employee needs to be reassigned here. And I'm like, or, or sorry, fired instead of reassigned, <laughs> reassigned, not good enough. I always just want to note that, uh, you know, that's not really the, unless the person acted with malfeasance or, or true. Well, I, I think incompetence is very likely here, but it doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter if this one person gets fired or not. It is very likely if the person did get fired that uh, he or she might be able to sue and claim that the system was faulty in some way, and that would just be then a problem for the taxpayers to deal with. But something weird happened here for sure. I woke up on Saturday. I was up. Yeah, you know, I keep talking about it. I make it sound like my weekend was interesting, or or actually no, I guess I make it sound like it's even more. Uh, boring than it was because I didn't do anything other than research and study and write. But Miss Molly's was on her way to Hawaii when this happened in the air in a plane, and I didn't. I knew she was arriving. I didn't know what exactly. You know, I don't check and see when her flight's gonna land. She just usually texts me, let me know the flight was fine. So I didn't know when she, whether she had or if she was landing or anything else. Um, it's 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 amazing that this thing. That this happened the way that it did. Look, the good news is, as far as I understand, nobody was hurt. Clearly, there's no ballistic missile, yay, but also nobody was hurt. Um, so that's good. Although people were terrified, there was a, an emotional distress that many of us would certainly feel. But it brings up the the uh, the, the bigger issue, right? There, there's there's two levels here. On one hand, there's the or on the one level, I'm mixing my metaphors here. There's two levels with one hand. Uh, on the one, on the one. <laughs> You have the ineptitude of the Hawaii state government with this system, and they messed up big time. Uh, 
wasn't it some years ago? I forget what happened. Wasn't there a, what administration was it when the plane was supposed to do a flyby? I guess it was Air Force One was supposed to fly by the Statue of Liberty and, you know, down lower Manhattan planes close to ground and everything. Was it, was it Obama or Bush? I don't remember now. But there was a plane that that flew. It was a government plane. I think it was Air Force One that flew too close to. Uh, um, let me know, guys. Let me know. We got producer Mike in the uh, in the chair today, so he's he's with us now. We've had some changes here in the Freedom Hut, which I'll also uh, talk to you about later on when I get a chance. But yeah, producer Mike, let me know what the uh, what the deal is with that. I'm pretty sure it was. I think. I see. I don't want to say it was Obama because then it's like I'm blaming the Obama administration. More than I already do for things, but I think it was them. Anyway, they flew a plane close to the Statue of Liberty, but it also frightened some people because it was. There we go. That's what I thought. Yeah. So Lower Manhattan was hit on 9-11 by two planes flying close to skyscrapers. So they decided to fly Air Force One for a photo op very close to the Statue of Liberty, which people that remember are people who remember what happened that day, 9-11, uh, when you have a jumbo jet that's getting pretty close to to ground down there, that that weirded some people out, understandably. This is you know similar to that in terms of the ineptitude, the foolish decision making, and all that. But then it also raised the issue of wow. Um, one of the reasons this was so frightening was that it's conceivable, right? One of the problems here is that if you were to get a message, those of you listening to the show, uh, those of you who are listening to the show in the Midwest, if you got a message that, you know, China was invading, you might be like, well, I mean, I think they're going to have, I'm not sure they'd get here first, you know, I'm not sure the Chinese invasion force is going to have, you know, paratroopers over Omaha first. They'd probably have to go to one of the coasts, right? There's, there's other stuff that would happen. That wouldn't concern you. But Hawaii... A nuclear missile, that's actually concerning because it could happen because it's within range and there's a belligerent power there. So we should talk a bit about this because there's a new era we have entered now of perhaps having to think again about the possibility of a conventional military strike, even a nuclear military strike, against the homeland. That's very different from where we have been psychologically as a country for a long time, for almost all of my adult life. We will get into that and much more after the break. What do you think about this Hawaii thing? Am I missing something? Is there a part of this that uh, a part of this that I've left out that you think is important here? Do you, do you think, as some, as some have suggested, that this could not have been a mistake? That maybe this was either a really dumb prank or, or a sending some kind of a message? I don't know. I'm just wondering if you if you got thoughts out there about this. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we have much more show coming up, my friends, so uh, stay with me. Instant, the launch is made, we know it. And then very quickly we make a judgment about whether we're being threatened or not. And then a notify the appropriate command. And it's that command that would marry up with local state emergency management centers. In this case, of course, there was no launch. And that emergency management center acted on their own without a military command advising them that they have detected a launch, not only detected a launch, but it's a threat to them. The emergency management center in Hawaii 
they know full well that they should not be providing an alert to their citizens without the military command advising them that such a thing actually exists. And it's actually threatening to the people in Hawaii. And that did not Absolutely. happen. Jack Keane over Fox News saying how an actual missile launch would be, uh, well, how we know about it, what would happen, what we would, uh, how, how that chain of information would work. Oh, by the way, before, producer Mike told me that it was Obama. He gave me the date, too. But I just said, oh, yeah, I forgot he wasn't on air. So, But the point is, that yes, it was the Obama administration that flew a uh, flew Air Force One too close to the Statue of Liberty, and it gave some people quite a jolt in lower Manhattan because it reminded them of what happened on 9-11. Mike in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, got some ideas about what happened. Mike, good to have you. Hey, how you doing tonight? I'm all right. Thank you for calling. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I program uh, PLCs and, and things like that, and I've got a theory that may play into here. Um, there's a couple of problems that I'm hearing. I, this was a training exercise, if I'm not mistaken, uh, what I've heard, and it's possible that whoever programmed this PLC or touchscreen is what I'm assuming it is. I don't think it's actually manual buttons anymore. My guess is that this was a, a PLC or a PC that had a touch screen and somebody hit the screen and when it came up to do the next step, they did it. And from there, in a training exercise, my assumption is that they wouldn't actually be able to trigger the alarms. It would go into a, another mode. And that was probably where the problem is going to be found at. That, that's my opinion. Uh, just feel like you're going to see that this was a programming issue or an HMI issue. Human Human machine interface was not connected correctly or a procedure issue i don't i think they panicked the first time and tried to correct it so fast that they hit it again that's just what i'm seeing right now and and it's sad but you you, know, so do you, so mike you, you've got you look i appreciate your expertise here you, you think that the individual who is responsible who's been reassigned maybe didn't mess up quite so much as people think in, in terms of how much responsibility is on him or her as opposed to the system right is it is it is it your analysis that the system maybe here was part of the problem? The programming of the system. There, there were some fail-safes that were in place that uh, did fall in. But there, what happened was I feel that the um, that what happened is the, either the programmer didn't follow through with his programming. They didn't check the system to see if this would happen. Because, like I said, I feel I heard that this was a training exercise, and a training exercise should never be allowed to go to the final point. It should show up on a screen, or it should show up on a PLC or whatever that there that this can happen, but it's supposed to be locked out, so it can't happen. So I don't fault this person. I I'm not saying he I'm not saying that the system isn't broke, but I think it's a programming issue as much as anything else right now. All right, Mike. Thank you so much for the call. Good to have you on, sir. All right, man. I appreciate. Show. Thank you. Thank you. 844-900-2825. You got any more thoughts? A little more just on the implications of living in a world where we actually have to be concerned about nuclear weapons aimed at us? Because that's new for us, isn't it, folks? That and then the latest on the uh, budget ceiling fight and also DACA and some... What was the other thing I'm leaving off here that I want to talk to you about? I'm forgetting what it was. Oh, yeah. Someone got... Uh, well, it's kind of complicated. Let's just say that I'm going to talk to you about Aziz Ansari later in the show. You'll see why. Stay right there.
He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Understanding why North Korea has developed and is holding on so tightly to these nuclear weapons because they see it as the only deterrent against the U.S. coming in and overthrowing the regime there. So that exists as a result, again, of our decades-long regime change war policies around the world that North Korea is now in a position where Kim Jong-un is saying, no way, I'm not going to give up these nuclear weapons because he doesn't see that credible message coming from the United States that we don't, we're not interested in overthrowing your government. We're interested in removing this nuclear threat from our country and the world. All right, I take it all back. That was representative from Hawaii, Tulsi Gabbard, and, and everything she said was idiotic there, and she has no idea what she's talking about. And forget about me saying that she's a Democrat. She's one of the Democrats that I like more than other Democrats. I take it, I take it all back. She's, that, was, that was a terrible display of ignorance there. A few things. Uh, the idea that North Korea has nukes because of us. The only way somebody could think that is if they have not even the, the faintest familiarity with the ideological origins of the North Korean state, with the Kim dynasty, with the functioning of North Korea, with the reason for that state's existence. No one could say that North Korea wants nukes because of us if they knew any of that other stuff. Because the truth is that North Korea wants to invade South Korea and North Korea can prevent a U.S. invasion of South Korea. It doesn't need a nuclear deterrent for us to be uh, stopped from going in militarily. It can destroy most of or all of Seoul, South Korea, very rapidly with conventional artillery. Plus, North Korea has chemical and biological weapons. At least we think. Who knows? We don't, we don't really know what it has, but I'm sure it's got all kinds of nasty stuff. Plenty of reason to believe that North Korea has managed to hide away all kinds of WMD that aren't even the nuclear variety. Uh, but this is, look, I understand for some people who are ignorant about foreign policy and how the world works, it's great to just find some tie-in to blame Trump in this administration. But this raises, in a, in a more serious way, putting aside uh, Gabbard's nonsense, in a more serious way, it's worth noting uh, there are concerns now about what the future looks like in a world that's going to have more states with nuclear weapons. Here's what people don't want to say out loud, but most of the folks that I know who have some idea what they're talking about will will say, at least offline or, you know, away from microphones. Very likely that North Korea is going to get nuclear weapons that could hit anywhere in the world soon. And it is very unlikely that anyone's going to do anything about it. It is also likely that Iran will get nuclear weapons at a more distant point in the future than North Korea's completion of its ballistic and nuclear weapons programs. And I don't think anyone will do anything about Iran having it. And at that point, you have major, not just problems of dealing with the missile threat, but also non-proliferation issues. And, you know, what do we do with an Iranian regime that wants to give, let's say, the Assad regime in Syria, which has still stayed in power? You don't hear much about it these days, but what do we do if the Iranians 
get nukes and then sneak them nukes. And where does that stop? You know, who else is going to want to get it? And clearly, if the Iranians get nukes, the Saudis are going to want to get nukes. And at some point in the relatively near future, the Japanese may decide, you know what? North Korea is going to be pointing weapons that are capable of eradicating us, uh, pointing them at us. Then we will have to do something ourselves. We can't just count on the good word and good graces of the United States of America to back us up on that. These are very real concerns. And we are entering a world where I think much more so than many are willing to say right now, we're going to be relying on missile defense systems instead of no one else can have missiles other than who already has them. The pace, this, the spread of information, including highly sensitive information, much of it pillaged via cyber means from places like the United States, but from all over the world, is accelerating all the time. And nuclear weapons really are, are a knowledge issue as much as a material one. And once they have the knowledge, there's really not much we can do about it to stop them unless we're really going to threaten military action. Does anyone really believe that the Iranians have given up their quest for nukes? I don't think so. Does anyone, well, maybe some former Obama administration officials, but does anybody with uh, an IQ that reaches in the high two digits and above. I mean, this is really not overly complicated stuff when you try to look at it from a realistic point of view. I mean, it's very complicated as an issue, but I'm saying whether the Iranians want nukes or not, they want nukes. It's not that hard. They want nukes. North Korea wants nukes that can hit us. And the belligerent posture of North Korea, to take us back to what Ms. Gabbard, Representative Gabbard said at the uh, beginning of this segment now, the warlike pose of North Korea is not our fault. It is really the only pose North Korea knows. It's the only one that it has. It is all that it can offer. And when you have a state that doesn't have a second gear, if it doesn't have another speed, it doesn't have another path, it's it exists to be a military force and, and a, an absolutism, a dynasty that is a despotism. What are we really hoping it turns into? Regime change? That would be such a blessing for the world. We're going to give up the idea of regime change in North Korea? What's the point of what's the point of international relations? You're just going to sit around and say, yeah, sure, North Korea, you get to keep, you do you, North Korea. Keep being a prison camp above ground and a concentration camp below it. It's astonishing to see how many people in this country in elected office in positions of power would rather use North Korea as an opening or use this missile test debacle as an opening to criticize the president than to address very real problems that we face. Yeah. I didn't ever have to do the, I know many of you listening did, I'm sure, but I never had to do the drill where we got under the desk. I've seen the videos of it. And I would note that, sure, depending on how close you were to a nuclear blast, being under the desk wouldn't really save you. But if you're at a certain distance, actually, I believe the shockwave could possibly hit the building and maybe debris would fall. So hiding under the desk was not necessarily always as foolish as it looked, but it looked pretty foolish as a means of trying to save people. And also, you look at a situation like Hawaii, if there were a ballistic missile with a nuclear warhead or an ICBM en route to North Korea, I mean, to uh, Hawaii, 
and we hadn't stopped it in flight. What procedures do we really have in place? What would we do? I think the answer is that very few people would have the means, the ability, the uh, lead time to get to a safe haven underground. A lot of people would die. So it's disturbing. It's disturbing. It's a reminder of why we need to take all of this so seriously, but it's disturbing that we don't have great answers to many of these questions right now. So uh, the good news is there was no ballistic missile going toward Hawaii. And I actually just got a text message a minute ago from Miss Molly. She sent me a photo of where she is. Hawaii is beautiful. Aloha, Hawaii. It's a great state. Not great politicians or judges out there, but a great state. And uh, I'm going to have to go back out there and check it out. Roll into a break here. We're going to talk a bit about the uh, the fight that is just getting just getting rolling right now because you know, it's a federal holiday, so the government's on a break. But the fight over DACA and the debt ceiling this week, where do I think all of that is going? Plus this, this story about Aziz Ansari, who's an actor who's gotten caught up in the Me Too movement in a way that we're, we're going to work we're going to work through this we're going to talk about this together because I think we've seen yet another yet another instance of someone who is guilty based upon accusations in the eye of the public and in this case it's worth even visiting what are these accusations all about uh, I don't know if, how many of you know he's a very well-known stand-up comedian and he was in the show Parks and Rec which I like very much somebody wrote a just a a character assassination piece about the guy I don't know if it's true or not, but it's it's meant to take him down. That much I do know. We'll talk about that coming up in the next hour. Uh, so stay right there, team. Be back. Honestly, I don't think the Democrats want to make a deal. I think they talk about doctors, but they don't want to help the doctor or people. Now, what do you say? You used to say the doctor killed because the children aren't killed. Well, what's the name? I think we have a lot of sticking points, but they're all Democrats sticking points. Democrat version of a deal on DACA. I'm sorry if, if, if you had trouble with some of that audio. It was not great today. Uh, you know, that was the best we could do. It was out in uh, whatever. It was out in the gallery or wherever it was. But the Democrat version of a deal on DACA goes something like this. Uh, give us DACA and then fund the government. The end. And that's not a deal. This is going to be very interesting because there's really no way in my mind, there is no way that the 
Trump administration, there's no way that the Republicans can lose this argument over DACA if they stick to the script, if they stay on message. Because I haven't heard anything that Democrats are willing to do to meet them, never mind halfway, just to do something in response to what uh, what they want, right? They want DACA, and that's the way it's going to be, and then everything else has to get funded. If the GOP goes along with this, by the way, we really have to start asking the question, what's the point of voting in a lot of these Republicans? Okay, sure, they'll do tax cuts. Tax cuts are good. That's all, that's all fine. But if unrestricted illegal immigration becomes the norm for this country, we're going to have much bigger problems in the long run than just what the tax rate is. And by the way, I haven't given up yet on the notion of a flat tax or a fair tax. I'm not yet in a place where I'm just going to say, yeah, you know, so they drop the corporate rates. So everything's great now. Yeah, no, we still pay too much in taxes, everybody. The IRS is still a monstrosity. It's still far too big, still far too powerful. So there's this DACA thing. And then there's also the back and forth over the, uh, well, why don't I, I'll hold that actually. They, oh, my gosh, did you hear what Trump said over the weekend? Oh, my gosh. Well, not over the weekend, but that's what they were saying over the weekend. That's so terrible. I I, I want to get to it, but I'm going to hold off on that for right now. I think that uh, we can stay on the issue of DACA and the debt ceiling. So here's my here's my prediction, if I can make one. Uh, well, actually, you know what? No, I'm not as certain this time. I was going to say they're just going to kick the can down the road. There's not going to be a shutdown. Maybe there will be a shutdown this time because Democrats aren't going to budge. If Republicans truly hold them to what the initial asks were from Trump, border security, end of chain migration, uh, funding for a wall, any of that stuff, particularly those two, chain migration and a wall. Oh, E-Verify should really be at the top of that list, too. If Trump insists on that and the Republican Congress insists on it, guess what? Democrats won't budge on it. They are absolutists on their quasi-open borders policy. They are 100% absolutists on amnesty. And then on open borders, you know, they, they want people to have to stop and check in so that, you know, the government is more able to give them taxpayer-provided services and register them to vote for Democrat. But everyone gets to come in and stay, right? No one should be prevented from going into the United States based on the Democrat view. But this is really going to force their hand. There's no way that we get past this point in the debate and the discussion without knowing whether or not, one, Republicans are serious, and two, are Democrats just completely intransigent? Do they merely demand, even in the minority, policy concessions from Republicans and get them. And if that's the case, we should all sit around and ask ourselves, why? Why is that true? Why is that happening? So we will see. Uh, If there's a shutdown, though, this might be the first time that the X factor really comes into play. The X factor being Trump. With Trump as the Republican party leader in a shutdown scenario. The reason why in the past, despite all the stuff, you know, Ted Cruz is really being, I want to have a shutdown. I mean, you know, despite all that stuff in the past. Uh, I mean, I, I like I like Ted Cruz. I, I, I was supportive of Ted Cruz. I 
Here's a little story. I interviewed Ted Cruz when he was trying to uh, – I, I did a very nice profile of him when he was running in the Republican primary against Dewhurst in Texas. Yeah, but I don't, I, I don't really spend a lot of time chasing down politicians to be on on this show because I just – I don't care all that much. If they say something interesting, I'll use the soundbite on the show. But interviewing them – I feel like everyone's interviewing politicians all the time. I don't, I don't find it that worthwhile a way for us to spend our time here. Uh, but yeah, I was with Ted Cruz early on. Uh, I did always think it was funny, though, that some people figured out in time that Ted Cruz only had one speed, and it was the Constitution. I love the Constitution. I was having my cornflakes yesterday, and it was as though George Washington and John Adams were right there with me with the Constitution. You know, he's very, he's got one speed. He's a good guy, smart guy, but not a charming guy at the national political level, and that was one of his problems. Trump... Trump can fight. Trump can charm. Trump has all kinds of speeds. And if this and the reason this matters so much is that the debt ceiling fight turns if it turns into a government shutdown, that is a public perception battle. Who's responsible for the shutdown or a better way of saying it is why are we in this situation right now? Who gets blamed for the shutdown? And in the past, it had always been Republicans are going to get blamed. Republicans are going to get blamed. If we go into a government shutdown scenario because Democrats say they want DACA and will give nothing in exchange, and Trump is out there banging the drum, so to speak, you know, making a lot of noise, making sure that everyone understands what's going on here, maybe Republicans will have some stiffened spines and realize that they are the majority party right now. They should be able to enact laws and policy and it shouldn't be dictated to them by the Democrats who just get to sit there and say, no, I don't want that. No. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. I would also note that DACA is a Trojan horse for much of the rest of the Democrat amnesty. And I have concerns about whether the Republicans should give in to DACA in any way, shape or form. Period. I know that's a little intense for some people, but I could work through why that is for you if you're curious. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Hour two is upon us, so be right back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show for many of you. So I was just talking about policy before. What should we do on immigration? What should we do about DACA? I don't know why Republicans feel like they have to give in. Don't we have the majority in the House, the Senate? Doesn't Trump have the White House? Why why are we just talking about doing what the Democrats want? I am hoping that there will be a, a reckoning within the GOP and a reckoning for Democrats that they do not have to do what the other side tells them to. But you can see where Democrats are going with all this. The comments about a a hole, I keep saying crap hole because I, I believe it was uh, somebody was on air over the weekend, I forget what it was now, who said, who used the letter S and then also inserted that hole and then people said it sounded like something else. And so and, uh, I'm not going to pull a CNN here and just start cursing up the joint. That's not okay. CNN loved doing that last week. 
but they were talking about this all weekend, and it was clearly something of a competition among the various uh, pundits posing as journalists at CNN. They'd be like, oh, my gosh, how could Trump say this? It's the most, it's the saddest thing. It's like, these, like, these countries are amazing, and, like, every country's equally amazing, and, like, you know, that's a good way to... Uh, look, they add zeros, add zeros to the contract. I'm sure you know they get they get a bigger check at the uh, next negotiation for their contract if they they play the game just right over there, right? <laughs> Trump is like such a racist. I go home at night and I have nightmares because he's such a racist. A lot of that, a lot of that going on over there. A lot of uh, you know the the left is does a lot of uh, weak weak sauce. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. A lot of weak sauce. You had uh, John Berman. Hi, John Berman. Uh, he's over there, and and he got a little he got a little feisty over this whole thing. He's a CNN. By the way, you're like, who's John Berman? You you don't have to know, but he works at CNN. So, so Josh, I'm tempted to say that Republican senators Purdue and Cotton are going on TV denying the comments were said, and they're hanging it on the difference between a blank hole and a blank house. One might reasonably ask, Are you effing kidding me? <laughs> well, I'm not going to uh, to to get into that. <laughs> there, there you have it. Yeah, Republicans are the ones that are are so great. Trump is the one that's causing all the problems here because he said some some crappy countries are actually crappy. He didn't say we we made this distinction right away. He didn't say the people were crappy. Okay, that would be wrong. That's not that's not okay. That's not right. He said the countries are. And there are crappy countries. I said, I didn't hear many people making this argument. I think it's a good one. If I said North Korea was crappy, no one's going to say, oh, Buck, that's so racist. No. South Korea is great, right? I mean, it's not about Korean people or Asian people or anything else. North Korea is just a bad country. In fact, I think the crappy country debate can, I think a great way to look at it is to look at the Korean Peninsula, right? It's about the country, not the people, not the way they look, not their ethnicity, their religious background, anything else. It's, we're just talking about the country here. North Korea, very crappy. South Korea, great. Difference of government, difference of, of state. That's it. So it's not about being mean or nasty or undermining anybody. Or, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm from New York City, and I mean, I would tell you, there are parts of, of New York City that are crappy. A lot less crappy now than they used to be, but there are parts of the city that are crappy. I mean, I live here. I can say, it. what's the problem? There are some parts of it that are wonderful, right? It depends. But a a plain-spoken and, dare I say, blunt presidency on issues that so many of us feel like we've had to dance around for such a long time is refreshing. Trump, I have not met a single—I I said this a lot when I say met. I, I haven't spoken— to a single Trump supporter who, after those comments, like, oh, my gosh, that's too much for me, sir. Oh, how dare you? No, there's none of that. They're like, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe maybe be a little more cautious about what you say in front of uh, Durbin. But Trump is saying, by the way, that Durbin lied. Here's his tweet. Senator Dickie Durbin. Oh, is that an, is that another nickname? Have we has he been dubbed? Has the has the Durbs been dubbed Dickie Durbin? Look at that. Senator Dickie Durbin totally misrepresented 
what was said at the DACA meeting, Trump tweeted. Deals can't get made when there is no trust. Durbin blew DACA and is hurting our military. So Trump is saying that it's not true. And then they got in this fight over the specifics of the words. You know, they're not allowed to say on Thursday or Friday, whenever it broke, Democrats are not allowed to say, oh, my gosh, did you hear the words that he said? It was, like, so upsetting, like, the words he used. Like, it was just like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm so sad. And then when Trump says, well, actually, I didn't use those words, they go, well, excuse me, Mr. I didn't use those words, but it's not the words. Well, is it the words or not? Is it Was it the profanity or the sentiment? If it's the sentiment, if it's just criticizing the countries, there are countries that deserve criticism. There are also countries that are just in a very desperate situation because of stuff that's happened to the, to the country, right? I mean, natural disaster is different than, say, uh, you know, uh, a bloody reign of narco-terrorism or something. But, you know, bad things happen in, in, good, in good countries. Bad things happen to good people. But the, the media freak out on this. It's just the, the divide between people that don't want to hear it anymore about how much the left hates Trump. And the people who just want Trump hatred 24-7, it just gets bigger and bigger all the time. I, I don't even want to have a conversation with some of these people out there, in the media particularly, because I come across them. who are just like, oh, gosh, Trump is the worst. It's just, oh, any day now. I'm always like, any day now what? Any day now what? Trump's going to, he's going to tweet something offensive? Oh, no. Maybe they should stop and just think it's possible, Democrats, leftists, it's possible that all that uh, flowery rhetoric from the Obama administration, all of his uh, pseudo-intellectual prose about policy was meaningless. M- maybe it doesn't matter quite as much as so many seem to think it does to have a president who sounds like he knows what's going on. Right? The perception of eloquence is much less important than the reality of policy. Trump is giving us the reality of policy. I don't really care much about the tone. You know, people can complain about it, sure. I sometimes say I wish he would say things a little bit differently, but, you know, I'm not expecting him to be perfect. He's not perfect, we know that. He's far from it, but nobody would think that that was a fair gauge, a fair standard for what's going on here. They just, though, they just hate this guy. By the way, uh, you even had... Uh, Alveda King come out on Fox News to say that it is outrageous to call Trump a racist. What is so outrageous to call a man a racist who continues to acknowledge the significant work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., my uncle, in a positive way, Mm -hmm. and he puts his money where his mouth is. He puts his energy behind it. And in making America great again, you know, perhaps saying that in Haiti and in Africa, you know, Africa is a huge continent with many nations, there was no offense to the people, a lot of dignity to the people, but the hell holes in that some of their own leaders in Africa and Haiti have have taken advantage of them and the area and done a disservice to the people. Yet they're all running around in the media saying Trump is such a racist. I can tell you one thing. Trump is not a racist. There are plenty of places where one could direct criticism of Trump personally or professionally. Otherwise, I'd say, well, you know, that's a, that's a fair critique. Trump's not a racist. And the more the media latches on to that as their primary method of uh, pushing back against this, this presidency, I think, I don't know how much 
more trust they can lose because I don't know if we trust them at all. Uh, but it is it is frustrating. It is frustrating. And, you know, for the president to have to say things like this. No, no, I'm not a racist. I am the least racist person you have ever interviewed. It's a shame that the media perpetuates all this. It's a shame that TV journalists go on air and tell their viewers that the president of the United States is a racist. The president of the United States uh, hates or thinks less of or treats people differently because of the color of their skin. They have no evidence of this whatsoever. They just have statements that they don't like. They don't understand that many of us have rejected the culture of calling everything racist that we don't like that has existed on the American left for so many years. That the hypersensitivity around issues of race has been counterproductive. And then we reject it. They don't accept any of this, the left, the Democrats, the media, but we don't have to accept their version of events either. It's a shame the president should be able to focus on other things, but they would rather just continue to debate racism. All right, uh, we'll take, uh, if you want to call in, talk about what you think about DACA or Trump or anything else going on in that world, 844-900-2825. I've got to talk to you about this uh, Aziz Ansari thing because it, ties right into the Me Too movement in a way that uh, deserves some of our attention. And we'll have much more. 844-900-BUCK, and uh, we'll be right back. Fake news better run and hide, because the Buck Sexton Show is back. Gary in Biloxi, Mississippi. Gary, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Yes, but thank you for taking my call, buddy. Thank you. I'm call- I, I hope that they don't do anything but get these people from DACA out of here because all that's nothing but a big fraud. And there's had a lot of people on TV that's explained who they are and why they're doing this. The other thing, Buck, is I'm wanting a shout-out to Jeff Sessions in, in Washington to do – how about uh, enforcing the law because we are being flooded, these southeastern states – with illegals and the buddy, they're bringing everybody with them, everybody. But uh, there's never any enforcement. You, I mean, I don't care how many people you speak to, nobody ever sees nobody being checked out. Nobody's gone to their house. Nobody's checked. I mean, you you know who they are. And it, just like, for example, in Walmart's, I mean, you can talk to some of the employees there, man, and it's just it's just crazy. I mean, where where is all these people? And so finally, one of the one of the employees there said that uh, they think there's going to be an amnesty. Well, they they're yeah. right in thinking that because that's what Democrats are promising everybody. Well, yes, but I mean, you know, there's nothing being done, no bucks. What I'm saying. Oh, it's of course. Well, there's no political done. will, Gary. From for there's no political will for the Democrats. In fact, the opposite of it to enforce the law. And yeah. let, let's be very clear, Gary. A lot of Republicans are are not just okay with the status quo they really secretly favor it you know they like they like the well, uh inexpensive it, labor it's yeah. good for corporate interests good for the donor class and that's a big problem doesn't that's, get much attention that's, that's my other point book paul ryan should be run out of town and all his buddies his close buddies like the guy that hangs with him all the time they're not republicans they're not conservatives they're just a rhino i, I would say uh, communists really they're clump- they're, they're, there's a lot of rhino. I can accept. Clump- Commie may be a little far there, Gary, but I, I know. I think right. I know where your heart is on this one. 
<laughs> but he needs to go. He needs to go, man. I mean, people should realize that. I've heard some people, intelligent people, talking to some of these other uh, people on uh, on their shows, and they, they got Ryan picked out, too. They know what he is. He's a fraud and a phony. Well, he's and on, on immigration, be- Gary. Yeah. And thank you yeah. so much for your call in from Mississippi. I appreciate it, my friend. Uh, on immigration, Ryan's terrible. He takes his point of view. I've been exposed to it from friends of mine who are from the more libertarian side. Uh, he takes this point of view that if you just bring in more and more labor, there's more productivity, GDP growth, and it's good for everybody. But if that were the case, why have any immigration laws? You, know, you can just reason your way through why you're or how and why you're being lied to about immigration all the time. If, if unrestricted, and there are people, the uh, Cato Institute, for example, it's a libertarian think tank in D.C. Uh, there's one guy, I forget his name, he goes on TV sometimes, and it's just, he's a, a hardliner on open borders. And he's a libertarian. And he'll say, oh, but, you know, the more people we take in, the better it is for the economy. And you say to yourself, hold on a second. We're $20, we're $20 trillion in debt, mostly because of obligations to seniors, Right. That's the biggest single driver of the debt is entitlements. And the unfortunate truth is that a lot of people are going to take out about twice what they paid in to Medicare over the course of their life once they are eligible for Medicare, which means you're getting more money than you gave, which means somebody else is going to have to pay for the money. Right. Somebody else is going to pick up those expenses. How is bringing in people who are even less productive and less likely to be uh, net contributors to society? How is that going to help this situation? So you can't tell me that open borders is a good thing and the welfare state can stay as is. You can't tell me that open borders is a good thing and the entitlement state that we have can stay. And this is what all the, the, the Paul Ryans and the Cato, they never address this. And then there's the, an even, an, an, that's just on a purely economic level. When you go to the, the more recent debate, it's about what does it do to a country when you reach a critical mass of individuals who are there illegally or even legally, but just who are new immigrants in very large numbers from countries that are culturally quite disparate. You know, this kind of reminds me of the whole crappy country conversation. I think that there are Democrats who will tell you that culturally the United Kingdom is, you know, people from the UK are not culturally uh, more able to assimilate in the United States than, say, people from Somalia or people from North Korea or, you know, name a country. They would say, oh, no, 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 you can't say that. You can't say that. The cultures aren't. Of course, it's nonsense, right? Some cultures are more similar to ours than others. When you take in large numbers of immigrants from cultures that not just are dissimilar, but that clash with ours, and yes, this is what Europe is dealing with, with large numbers of Muslim immigrants from war-torn, in many cases, very poor, very violent countries. You know, you're, you're importing in large numbers people who are disproportionately going to have certain attitudes, beliefs, and yes, problems. It doesn't mean everyone. It just means policy needs to be a function or you need to view policy in the aggregate based on the overall numbers, right? We make laws 
not with the idea that each and every individual human being that maybe gets caught up in a certain law is a bad person. But look, we got we got to make laws. We got to have punishments. On balance, are some people going to get in trouble because they violate certain laws, even though they're otherwise good people? Yeah, sure. But if our approach is just, well, you know, everyone makes mistakes. There's no will. There's no desire to enforce the law. What are we left with as a country? And it's true of our borders, and it's true of our sense of self, too, whether we have a political culture that can be sustained. You know, you look at Canada, for example. Hey, Canada, what's up? You look at Canada, they free speech is, is dying in Canada, and it's happening rapidly. Free speech going away. How far is that from happening here? Once free speech goes, I would note, then, anyth- then anything is really up for grabs. Then they could push any number of things on you. So, James in Newport News, Virginia. What's up, James? Hi. Um, I just wanted to call. Uh, I was foreign military. And it wasn't uncommon if you got a duty station that was not in a good place, like it was remote and with not a whole lot of services there. Uh, you, you, know, you know, we would call. So I would ask you, what do you think about it? You would say it's an S-hole or an A-hole. I mean, it, it's, that language has nothing to do with the people that live there. Um, it has totally to do with uh, the, the situation about living there. And if anybody wants to argue that Somalia is a hard place, you know, I'm just giving an example. I don't have anything against Somalia. It's, it's not a bad place, a hard place to live in um, or a place that you wouldn't want to live. I don't know how they can make that argument. But um, anyway, I guess that's one thing I wanted and um, to talk about. And then I guess the other is just, you know, I think Trump needs to, to speak more to these issues uh, around racism. First, he's, he is 70 years old, right? I mean, uh, then whenever called him a racist when he was, you know, anywhere. No, when he was working in media, uh, when he was in New York City and a very public figure, no one ever thought he was a racist until he ran as a Republican. Right. Like a New York liberal is probably not a racist, particularly if he's in business. No, I doubt it. And I, and I guess the other thing is um, what he was trying to say with this statement, what he, you know, they, they he needs to talk about his, his plan for America. And he's talked about trying to alleviate the poverty in the cities and giving those people opportunities, just like other Americans. I'm with you, you, James. We've got to roll into a break, though. Thank you, my friend. Team, we'll be back with much more. shows just talk at you in the freedom hut we have a mission we fight for the truth in a team effort and buck is back with our next play team you know that for months now i've been warning about the inevitable excesses injustices and politicization of the me too movement I, i knew it would happen and it is already happening You had some very odious sexual predators who were uh, thankfully outed and uh, received at least some measure of uh, justice or perhaps their their victims received some measure measure of justice by the public humiliation of individuals who clearly were acting in atrocious and maybe even uh, felony criminal fashion. But there are other people who have been in trouble, and you say, well, wait a second. What exactly did they do here? 
And the commentary around some of the very big cases of the Me Too movement has been troubling. Not all of it, but some of it. You'll hear things like, well, we, we need to make sure that men don't ask women out in the workplace anymore. Is that, is that the rule? Is that the world we want to live in now? Men can't lean in for a kiss without asking permission first. Is, is that the world that we're trying to construct? Is that the America we think is best? I know you know that, of course not, but Democrats don't necessarily understand that at all. Leftists, it's really more leftists than anything else. Democrats are leftists, but this is within a, 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 a contingent, this is a contingent of the Democrat Party. And then this piece came out about Aziz Ansari. Uh, now, I'm, I'm familiar with his work. I, I've seen him as a stand-up comedian uh, briefly uh, on uh, one of his specials. He was not funny. But he was very good in the show Parks and Recreation, which, for those of you who haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's really great, very well-written, very funny. But start at season two because they changed some things. The first season's not good. It's like a bad version of The Office. The second season, it really comes into its own as a show. So just skip the first season. You don't need to see it. Go to season two. It's on Netflix and everything else. Aziz Ansari is very good in the show. So, you know, he's he's a pretty talented actor. He's a young guy. He's close to my age. And over the weekend, a and he's, I feel like, I don't know how many of you know him, but he's, he's pretty famous, uh, pretty well-known, particularly in, well, among among media types, he's very well known. He, he wrote a book, I think, also as a bestseller about romance called uh, Modern Romance, and it was an international bestseller. So, or whoever wrote it for him did a very good job. Anyway, a woman claimed in a piece over the weekend for what I believe is a feminist website called Babe, which is. I guess there's a there's some I don't know why that that doesn't seem like what you would call a feminist website necessarily, but a feminist website called Babe, and this woman claimed that Aziz she's a young photographer, 23 years old, or she was 22 at the time. Um, he was 30 something, and not that that doesn't that's just a detail, right? It doesn't mean she's completely of age and she's a, an adult and everything's fine, right? But anyway, just trying to give you some of the context. And she saw him, and they. I'm gonna skip because this. It was a a tough read because you're. She gives you every, and she changes her name, so it's an anonymous accusation in print against an actor, where she walks you through every detail of what she says happened in this one night. Uh, it was supposed to be something of a. Uh, well, Mr. Ansari was trying to make it an amorous evening. That's one way to say it. And so she met him, and then they end up going out for dinner. They exchange phone numbers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The night in question, she called it the, the the title of this piece she wrote is, I went on a date with Aziz Ansari. It turned into the worst night of my life. Now, I'm thinking that, you know, well, wow, this must be really terrible. I'm expecting to read in here that Aziz Ansari was... Uh, yeah, slipped something into her drink, and she woke up with no clothing on. I mean, I, I'm I'm assuming I'm going to read some truly horrible stuff. 
And I, like a lot of other people, this piece went totally viral over the weekend. I mean, I did take a short break from my Crusades research for Shields High, the podcast that I'm hoping all of you listening to the show will download on iTunes today uh, to read this piece. And the woman walks through a whole series of events from the in in every detail you know whether it's all accurate or not i'm just saying she goes in excruciating detail you know he put his hand here he touched me here he said this to me then and he put me up on the counter and then he tried to do x to me and i tried and i and she goes through all this and at the end of it it's clear that she's unhappy with the situation but she says that that she had it took her a while to figure out she'd been sexually assaulted and what's amazing to many people, and, and finally you've had something of a, uh, a, a backlash against this anonymous assault. Uh, what's amazing here is that this woman, or this anonymous accusation of sexual assault, uh, from everything that was apparent in the article, just didn't like what was going on and... I saw a woman in the Atlantic call this a form of revenge porn against Aziz Ansari. Just meant to humiliate and degrade him. He never used force against her. When she said, I don't want to do that, he said, okay. And they went and put their clothing on and sat on the couch. You know, there's a difference between gross and criminal. Or there's a difference between uh, ungallant or you know, maybe even a little sleazy and being a predator. And this is a very important one that society needs to be clear on, right? We we need to have an understanding here. It's not the same thing. Leaning in for a kiss and then if you don't get it saying, oh, whatever, I don't want to kiss you anyway, that's a jerk thing to do, but it doesn't make you a rapist, right? We all understand this. Uh, Barry Weiss over at the New York Times in response to this piece wrote this. Quote, I'm apparently the victim of sexual assault. And if if you're a sexually active woman in the 21st century, chances are that you are, too. That is what I learned from the expose of Aziz Ansari published this weekend by the feminist website Babe, arguably the worst thing that has happened to the Me Too movement since it began in October. It transforms what ought to be a movement for women's empowerment into an emblem for female helplessness. The victim in this 3,000-word story is called Grace, not her real name, and her saga with Mr. Ansari began at a 2017 Emmys after-party. As recounted by Grace to the reporter Katie Way, she approached him, but he brushed her off at first. Then they bonded over their vintage cameras, etc., etc. After arriving at his Tribeca apartment on the appointed evening, she was excited, having carefully chosen her outfit after consulting with friends. They exchanged small talk and drank wine. It was white, she said. I didn't get to choose, and I prefer red, but it was white wine. Yes, we are apparently meant to read into the non-consensual wine choice. There is a type of young... So that's the quote from Barry Weiss, uh, who is a female editorial columnist for the New York Times. There is a type of young millennial feminist out there now that has embraced this idea that men are a problem and that men have to be curtailed, tamed, uh, shamed, punished, and that men are the cause of 
so many of the problems in, in women's lives these days. Their minds have been poisoned. I mean, I've actually come across them before. I've come across near peers of mine who are just so bitter towards men in general, not to one man, towards men, and blame many of their problems on those men or, or on men in general. And it, it just exudes from them. You're, you're very aware of it all the time. And they have these feminist ideas and philosophies about how, you know, rape is always, a, is always an act of force and, and sexual assault happens to everybody all the time and men are all predators. You just have to give them enough drinks before you see it. I mean, there's all this stuff that comes out. They believe that campuses are so dangerous. There's a campus rape frenzy out there and all this. It's not true. The statistics prove it's not true. My own lived reality on compass, uh, compass, campus as a resident advisor, who we call the resident counselor, who was very familiar with all the on-campus statistics and cases and everything else. We all knew about whenever anything went bad. Stuff goes bad, but it was rare. And if anyone knew about it, it was very severely punished. I mean, there are predators. There's just the difference between... There are predators and 50% or 20% or whatever of all men are predators. And some women have been brainwashed into thinking this, particularly young women right now. I mean, the the feminists of the Hillary Clinton era have further polluted the minds of the elder millennial feminists that, that I'm personally familiar with uh, who are just hateful towards men. This whole—I I, Almost, I hesitate to tell you to read this piece by Aziz, on Aziz, not by, on Aziz Ansari and this exchange because I feel like it almost makes the problem worse and that more people, this guy's just getting humiliated. And there's also something really grotesque about writing about a, a personal encounter like this that was not criminal. This guy, based on all of the, based on everything that was written here in this article, he did nothing criminal and, and honestly, not even close. She got mad at him in a text message after this because she said that he did not understand her nonverbal cues. Well, what is that supposed to mean? You're an adult. You're in an apartment with somebody who is sexually interested in you. You are not incapacitated. She wasn't saying she couldn't consent because she was too drunk or anything else. You can use your words. You could say, I don't want to do this. You could say, stop. You could say, I'm leaving. And then, you know, the moment someone grabs your wrist and says, no, you're not anything else. Well, now we got a problem. Now we got a predator. Now we got to take action as a society. And, you know, if you're a male that happens to be in the woman's life uh, who has been assaulted in such a way, you know, you may be taking action on your own. But up to that point, it's up to her. Meaning that, you know, she's got to say, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to leave. Don't do that. I'm not interested in that. She can't just sit there. And let a guy do things that he wants to do and then say, afterwards, you didn't read my nonverbal cues. You know, I would note that, yeah, there can be physical cues, too. She didn't push him away. She didn't say no. She just kind of let him do stuff and then stopped him at one point. And when she said stop, he stopped. And she's accusing him in print of sexual assault and humiliating him by saying, you know, embarrassing things that he said to her. You know, there's private stuff that everybody says to people when they're you know, yeah, what is it, in flagrante delicto, whatever. I mean, people say things. This is uh, this is troubling. I mean, this is now this is now turning into a 
a very destructive form of uh, of political sport for some feminists, and it needs to stop. And I, look, I, I feel I don't know Aziz Ansari. I'm sure we would disagree on on everything, pretty much, uh, based on what I have heard of his politics. And he might be he comes across like kind of a jerk in this article. I'm not saying he's not a jerk. I'm just saying to call him uh, a effectively call him a rapist, which this article does, or an attempted rapist, even though he didn't attempt to rape anything or anyone, is this is scary stuff. I mean, any guy, I got to say, any young guy out there who's, you know, unmarried and out on the scene, you, you might want to read this and just be aware that this is na- this mentality has now been uh, aggravated. This this hyper feminist anti male. You didn't read my nonverbal cues, so you're a rapist, and I'm going to publicly call you that or a sexual assaulter now. That's out there, guys. We, you know, you got to be careful because they're getting the media running around saying, oh, yeah, that's right, me too. Every Women need to be believed. I mean, this is all happening. There is a mobilization here of a mob mentality, and a lot of innocent guys are going to get ruined by it too, and it's already happening. Yeah, a lot of bad ones have, but a lot of innocent ones are going to as well. All right, I've got lines lit. we got to take some calls. We'll be right back. Chuck in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Chuck, you're talking to Buck. Hey, Buck, how's it going? That's good, brother. Thank you for calling in. Excellent. Hey, could I make just one fast comment about the Hawaii uh, situation? Yeah, you can make a, a medium-length comment about it if you want. All right. Well, actually, it can be done in one, well, two words, I guess. Maui, Wowie. Oh, what is that? Uh, that's one of those strains of high-altitude pot that they grow over there. Oh, oh, I was, and, uh, I was unaware so maybe, of that. Uh, we're dealing with, uh, uh, this could just be like, uh, there was a movie, um, Apocalypse Wow or something like that, uh, uh, you know, where, uh, where people just made a lot of mistakes and, oops, I was high. That's it, whoops, apocalypse. There's what we're dealing with out there. But that's really not the main point. Uh, okay, yeah, what is the main I, point, Chuck? <laughs> yeah, what I'd like to talk to you about is something that's really been on my mind for quite some time, and that is we always talk about the founders not paying attention or not being aware of uh, machine guns and the Second Amendment's out of step. But what they forget about is that I think that these guys really didn't foresee and couldn't have foreseen these info-entertainment giants that have come on the scene that control so much of what we see in both entertainment and news. And that's why um, you make the point about, um, I can't think of her name from Hawaii, gets to come on air and say something totally idiotic. Is because it's, she's totally covered. She does not have to fear that uh, under Spivak and some of these other guys that made these morning shows, she would have been that would have been a career-ending statement. You know, hmm. and likewise on the um, uh, the immigration, we're not getting good information. So how do we fight back? Uh, well, on immigration, you fight back by well, listening to this show is a good start, but also yep. You would hope that the uh, the Republican Congress that we just elected in the last in the last uh, national election will actually get some results this year. I mean, this, that's the way it's supposed to work. There's only so much you and I, Chuck, can do, right? We can learn about it. Well, we can know about it. We can spread the word, but we don't actually have any power 
to change immigration policy in this country. So we can hope that the Republican Congress gets it together. We can push them to do so. We can spread the word and the truth. And that's what we do. But on immigration, it I am um, I am a skeptic about the GOP doing what needs to be done on immigration. But, Chuck, thank you for calling in from Michigan. Very much appreciate hearing from you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, I I would like to say that I'm, you know, what, cautiously optimistic or something on immigration, but I I just can't. I There are too many ways that it goes bad with, uh, with the GOP, too many Republicans who just prefer, well, they prefer to say one thing when they have to get elected and then do another when it comes to casting their votes on, on immigration. And, you know, it's, isn't, it, isn't it astonishing that we're in a country that takes in a million... That, that brings in a million legal permanent immigrants a year or makes them permanent a year. We have a million new permanent residents of this country each year from outside of America. And we have to get lectures from our own media about how we're xenophobic or because we want to get rid of the chain, uh, chain migration or the diversity lottery system, we're all bad people or something. It's... Yeah, it's a sign of, of the times. Unfortunately, they've lost it. Uh, we're going to talk about currency and currency wars in just a few moments here. Let me ask you this question. We'll set us up for what's coming up next. What would happen if China dumped all of our U.S. Treasury bonds? So far, it has been a very strong year for the U.S. economy, and many people are looking back on President Trump's first year in office and thinking that it's been excellent for markets and for employment and for business. But what would happen if China decided that it wasn't going to keep buying U.S. Treasuries? That's a story that's been printed by numerous news outlets in the last week or so. It hasn't gotten that much attention, but it could be a really big deal. Well, to help us look at what it would mean, we've got New York Times bestselling author James Rickards on the phone. He is the author of Currency Wars, The Making of the Next Global Crisis. James, great to have you. Great to be with you, Buck. James, uh, tell me what would happen. Let's just start with that before we get into more of the, the thesis of your of your book. What would happen if China decided to stop buying U.S. Treasuries? Well, at the margin, they're the, the largest foreign holder of U.S. Treasuries. Actually, the, the people with the most Treasuries are uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve. But outside, they uh, print money. When they print money, they buy U.S. Treasuries. So they've got about uh, four trillion on their books, but China has over one trillion. So between the Fed and China, you've got five trillion dollars of the total twenty trillion dollars of U.S. national debt. So China's a huge player. At the margin, it would tend to make interest rates go higher. That means everyday Americans would pay more for their mortgages. Credit card rates would go up. It would definitely Definitely have a slowing effect on the U.S. economy. But when I saw that, I saw the same story you're referring to. I obviously watched it closely. To me, it wasn't uh, something they were actually going to do anytime soon. It was more of a shot across the bow, a warning to the Trump administration: Don't mess with us on trade because we can hit you back in the Treasury markets. So this is what the kind of financial uh, warfare is all about. Tell me though about what an actual currency war with China would look like, and and, and how would it st- how would it start first? Well, we actually have some experience with this. In, in 2009, I was asked by the uh, 
the Pentagon to help facilitate. A, it was their first ever financial war game. As you know, war games are conducted all the time. But this was the first financial war game. The only weapons were stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, and derivatives. We did it at the uh, Warfare Analysis Laboratory down in uh, near Washington at the Applied Physics Lab. We had participation from you know the uniformed military, uh, CIA, the Fed, the Treasury, a lot of outside experts. We did it for two days. And in that scenario, China and Russia teamed up to um, acquire gold, uh, have a new gold-backed currency issued out of London, basically run the dollar off the road. Uh, we got kind of laughed at it at the time. A lot of people said, oh, that would never happen. But since then, since we did that with the Pentagon in 2009, China and Russia have tripled their gold reserves. So things are actually playing out the way we sort of told the Pentagon at the time. But, but right now, it could happen on a lot of fronts. It could happen with gold. It could happen with cryptocurrencies. It could happen with treasuries. China is very unlikely to dump their treasuries. The, you know, the oldest joke in banking is, if I owe you a million dollars, I have a problem. But if I owe you a billion dollars, you have a problem because you have to collect it from me. Well, right now the United States owes uh, China a trillion dollars, over a trillion dollars. So I would say China has the problem because the president with one phone call could freeze the Chinese treasuries. If they ever did anything kind of untoward or disorderly in the treasury market, uh, the president has the authority with one phone call to call the Fed and the treasury to, to freeze those securities. He wouldn't default on them. He would say to the Chinese, hey, we'll keep paying you interest, but we're just going to freeze them for now until you get back on your best behavior. So that's one way a, a currency war, financial war, could play out. What is happening right now with our currency, though? I mean, a lot of people will be asking questions like, we're at $20 trillion in debt. There's been all this gamesmanship, all this stuff going on with the Fed and monetary policy. But for most folks, James, right now it feels like everything's fine. How would things not go? How would things all of a sudden not be fine when we're talking about U.S. currency? Well, you know, uh, Buck, when you say gamesmanship by the by the central banks and, and the treasury, that's exactly the right word. They've been kind of manipulating uh, things behind the scenes. So you're right. When you, when you say the economy's fine, I think what you really mean is that the stock market's going up. Well, that's for sure. Stock market's gone up, uh, I think, about 30 percent since President Trump was elected. Uh, that feels good to a lot of people. Um, but, you know, the economy's doing a little better, but not a lot better. I'm very skeptical of the impact of this, uh, the tax bill. But but the problem from the uh, from the Chinese perspective, you know, this uh, this whole financial war is coming to a head. The president has been itching to do something on the trade front. Remember, he said he was going to, you know, tear up NAFTA. He has not done that. Uh, he, um, you know, he said he was going to build a wall with Mexico. That hasn't happened yet. So there are a lot of things that Trump has talked about uh, that that he hasn't actually done. Uh, but one of the the things he would like to do is hit China with some sanctions on steel, aluminum, and uh, some other. Uh, solar panels and some other things. The problem is the president needs China's help on North Korea. So the reason the president has held off on the trade war with China is because we're looking for their help with North Korea, and that's a subject you've been following closely. But China hasn't really done that much. They're, they're talking a good game, but they haven't really done that much. Oil's still getting into North Korea. It's still being smuggled in. They haven't really put the stranglehold in North Korea. So I think the president's getting fed up with that. Um, Trade Representative Lighthizer has been itching to put on sanctions. Wilbur Ross agrees. So I think we'll see a trade war with China, and then we'll just kind of fight it out in the currency market and the the bond market. We're speaking to James Rickards, New York Times bestselling author of Currency Wars, The Making of the Next Global Crisis. James, I've got your book right in front of me here, and it, it certainly makes one think that we could face a global crisis when it comes to currency. How do you think that is most likely to happen? How would it happen? 
Well, see, right now, the, of course, the dollar is getting a lot weaker, and we see that in the price of gold. Everyone says, you know, well, the price of gold has gone up over $100 an ounce in the past few weeks. And people go, oh, gold's going up. But the way I think about it, gold's not really going up. What's happening is the dollar is going down. So, yeah, the dollar, the dollar price of gold is higher, but that's just like a, a, a symptom that the dollar is getting weaker. Believe it or not, the Federal Reserve actually likes that. The reason is it increases the price of imports. It actually brings some inflation into the U.S. economy. The Fed wants inflation. They've been. They've spent five years trying to hit their target. They have not hit their target of two percent inflation in five years. So the so the weak dollar actually helps them to meet their target a little bit, and lets them keep on track to to keep raising interest rates. But the problem is, you know, inflation is mostly a psychological phenomena. It takes a long time to turn the ship, but once you do, inflation can spin out of control. We saw this in the late 1970s. So yeah, there hasn't been any inflation through all this money printing in the last eight years. But the reason is that people have not had inflationary expectations. They, they're still kind of licking their wounds from the meltdown in 2008. But if that changes, it would be very hard for the Fed to contain the change. It can change very quickly. Again, we saw that in the late 70s. So one of the, thing, one of the dangers here is that the Fed plays the weak currency game, fights the currency wars with a cheap dollar. And again, we see that in the higher price of gold. But then the inflation actually kicks in, expectations change, and then people start to dump dollars to buy you know, other hard assets, gold. Gold, silver, land, fine art, anything, and turnover increases. So the, the, I think the, play, the Fed is uh, playing with fire here uh, in terms of setting off a uh, potentially um, uh, dangerous inflationary cycle. In, in layman's terms, James, what is a currency war? A currency war is two countries who cheapen their currency to steal trade advantage from their partners. So the, we're not always in a currency war, but when currency wars begin, they can last for 10 or 15 years. And I talk about that in my book. The book came out, my book, Currency Wars, came out in 2011. Here we are in 2018, and we're still in the same currency war. You know, reporters are go, oh, there's a new currency war. Well, no, I say, no, it's the same one. It's just been going back and forth. Currency wars happen when there's too much debt, not enough growth. It's exactly the situation we're in today. Too much debt, not enough growth. Same situation the world was in in 1919 after World War I. So what countries do is they try to get a little growth by stealing from their trading partners. So if I cheapen the dollar, well, guess what? My Boeing aircraft exports, are, they're, they're a little cheaper to foreign buyers. All U.S. exports are cheaper. Imports are more expensive because we're trying to buy them with a, uh, a cheaper currency. So that improves the trade deficit. That's good for growth. And like I say, it helps uh, big exporters like General Electric and Boeing and so forth. So that's the theory. The problem is that there's retaliation. So I cheapen the dollar. Well, you know, Europe comes along and they try to cheapen the euro, and China comes along and they try to cheapen the yuan and so forth. So it just goes back and forth and back and forth like two kids on a seesaw, and it's a negative-sum game. Everybody ends up worse off. Nobody wins. But the temptation is always there to give your economy a boost with a cheap currency. So the Fed's doing that right now, today. Uh, the dollar is getting weaker, and, and you know maybe the U.S. is getting a little uh, boost to go side-by-side side with the uh, stimulus and the tax cut, but it won't last. Um, again, there'll be some retaliation from China sooner or later, and that's how the currency wars play out. If Trump could, uh, if, if Trump read your book, and, and maybe he has, by the way, but I just mean if you were to read it again, let's say, uh, and was to take one thing from it that he could do or that the government could do right now to try and address some of the problems that you've described for us, James, what would it be? 
probably buy gold. Uh, Russia's doing it. China's doing it. You have to ask yourself, Buck. Russia and China have tripled their gold reserves in the last nine years. Uh, Russia has gone from about 600 tons to almost 2,000 tons. China has gone from, again, around 600 tons to almost 2,000 tons, although China has a lot more than that because they're non-transparent about it. So you have to ask yourself, uh, you know, are the Russians and Chinese stupid, or do they see something we don't? Well, I've been to Moscow and Beijing. I'm sure you have, too. They're not stupid. They know what they're doing. And if they're acquiring that much gold, they have to be getting ready for some kind of international monetary collapse or reset. And I would say one thing the U.S. could do to uh, increase its strength and uh, beyond playing defense, actually uh, strengthen its hand, would be to get more gold itself. Is the music going to stop on the U.S. economy, James? Uh, it will, uh, sure. These look, these financial crises come along almost like clockwork every seven, eight years. You know, you go back 19, October 19, 1987, stock market fell 22% in one day. That would be the equivalent of 5,000 Dow points today. Not 500, but 5,000. 1994, the Mexican crisis. 1997, the Asia crisis. 1998, the Russia crisis. 2000, the dot-com meltdown. 2007, the mortgage meltdown, 2008, Lehman AIG. We haven't had one since 2008, but as I say, the history says they come along every seven, eight years. We're not in a good position for one right now, but whether it's the currency wars, a natural disaster, a shooting war with North Korea, a trade war with China, there are a lot of catalysts out there, and the stock market could drop like a stone. James Rickards, author of Currency Wars, The Making of the Next Global Crisis. James, great to have you. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right, team, we're going to roll into a break. Uh, When we come back, I am going to talk to you about a lot of things, including uh, the Shield Time podcast. This week, the first crusade. It's out today. Check it out on iTunes. We'll be right back. It was a pretty crazy weekend in the news cycle. I I was deep in my history books, actually had a few of my books from one of my favorite classes in uh, college at Amherst, which was the First Crusade. So I actually took a, I took an entire semester-long course on the First Crusade. It was some time ago. But it was an excellent professor. He was Irish, and he was from the University of Massachusetts and was just teaching a class on Amherst campus. Uh, but I, I was all immersed in that world. I was, I was just rocking out in the 11th century slash early 12th century, as one does. And I saw the... Uh, talked to you about it, the Hawaii bomb or missile threat warning, which just is, is baffling that that could happen the way that it did. And then I saw something else, and, and I assu- I had to assume right away that this is uh, a joke or no way, but it turns out it's not. Uh, Chelsea Manning is running for office, and it is for the uh, it's for a Senate seat. And I just think to myself, you know. We've really just, as a society, it seems to me, entirely and completely uh, lost some sense of objectivity. When you not when you have somebody who has no accomplishments or resume to speak of, apart from committing treason against his country, and that is for the Democrat Party, at least some Democrats, like Chelsea Manning's not going to win, uh, but that is taken seriously as as a possibility by some within the party, by some people inside of the American left. And I just don't know how that's, I was going to say I don't know how it's possible, but sure enough, here we are um, running for Senate in 
Maryland. This is a this is a little bit of the the news background of this. The transgender f- uh, former army officer who was convicted of leaking classified documents filed her statement of candidacy with the Federal Election Commission on Thursday. The Washington Post reported Saturday that Manning will challenge Democrat Ben Cardin. He has served two terms and is an overwhelming favorite to win. The 30-year-old Manning listed a North Bethesda address in her FEC filing. She is running as a Democrat. Manning was convicted of leaking classified information and spent more than six years behind bars. Um, okay, a few, thi- a few things here. And this, that's all from some uh, NBC affiliate down in Maryland. Okay. She's not going mean, to... Oh, see, I just did it. He's not going to win. He's not going to win. I know people yell, you're misgendering. No, you can change your name. You can't change your gender. This is a a, a debate now that has turned into Democrats not just yelling, but trying to use the force of law against reality, against what is obvious and apparent to anybody who cares to pay attention. That is that Chelsea Manning is a male. There's 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 not a scientific debate or dispute about this. It is as clear as any objective reality can be. And yet here you have this and be and so many of them now. I even see conservatives doing it. And I'm telling you, if I start doing it, it's only because I'm being threatened with either like legal action or some kind of HR sanction from somewhere or someone uh, because it's just crazy to me. But that's where we're heading. I mean, now in an office environment, in a workplace, you're going to have to say she when it's a he and he when it's a she. Why? Because someone says so. Now, it would be one thing if, like I said, if this were just about choice. Your name is a choice. If somebody wants to be called Lothar Keymaster of Gozer, which is actually uh, a pretty badass name, I will call them that if that is, in fact, their name, right? I mean, I think you have to. But, you know, then again, if it's not on your driver's license or, or your passport or something, if you're just changing your name every five minutes, you know, at some point you can also say to somebody, what's your real name, right? But you can change your name. You're allowed to decide this is what I would, this is what I would like to be called. But you can't change your gender and forcing people to recognize an unreality or a falsehood is a very dangerous game for society to play. And it's getting crazier and crazier. I remember five or six years ago, if you said that Democrats would be pushing for boys to be able to use the girls bathroom in high school and vice versa based upon gender identity. You would have been called a, a fear mongerer, nonsense. You're just being, you're just being a bigot, and you're also mean. And now here, here we are. We're, we're already at the point where that's the case, and we're supposed to forget that it wasn't long ago at all that the very people pushing for this were saying that it was crazy and never going to happen. Well, I guess times changed rather quickly, didn't they? Uh, but it, it is a matter of time. I think that we will all be forced. Uh, there will be an an, an effort to. Eliminate people from the public sphere who refuse to play this preposterous game when it comes to pronouns. But back to Chelsea Manning specifically, formerly known as Bradley Manning. You know, that's called when you refer to a transgender person's uh, previous name that is tied to their previously identified, self-identified gender, they call that dead naming. And it's a terrible insult. You think, why is it such an insult, right? If somebody says, says, you know, Buck, your name's actually James, and I say, well, Buck is part of my middle name, and it's been my name since I was a kid, 
But saying that my first name is James is not an insult. It's just, just true. Saying that somebody's name was something else is not an insult. You can say it's dead naming, but the problem that they have with it is just that it points out how absurd the whole situation is. That, you know, they don't want any reminders of what has happened here. That someone has decided, oh, I'm actually, you know, my name isn't Bob, my name is Susie, and I'm a woman. Okay, why? How? When did that happen? And we're supposed to celebrate this, too. Look, people can do whatever they want. Somebody wants to go around, wear a dress, you know, or not, or whatever. People can dress how they want, they can do what they want. You know, do your thing. You do you. I get all that. But to force me to be complicit in a delusion is wrong. And Chelsea Manning is still celebrated by some on the left. For what? I, I have, well, I have some idea. They, they think that those leaks were exposing war crimes. And I always want to say to them, really, what, what war crimes were exposed by the leaks exactly? That mistakes happen in war? That, that uh, Chelsea Manning, formerly Bradley Manning, could embarrass people who are actually fighting the war out there? I mean, it just... It, it enrages me. But I'll tell you this. Chelsea Manning is going to get some votes. Not a lot, but there will be people who vote for Chelsea Manning. Make no mistake about it. Obama commuted this guy's sentence. All right. We are going to get into uh, much more coming up here. And uh, stay with me. Battles of the past define the present. This is Shields High. Gather around, friends, for I have a story to tell. A thousand years ago, a military force assembled in Europe and rallied under the banner of the cross. This Christian army believed no less than their eternal salvation was at stake. So, team, that's the beginning of this week's episode of Shields High. We have gone from the Battle of Tours, the victory of Charles Martel, the hammer over the Franks, to the First Crusade. I think you will uh, really enjoy this episode. It uh, gets into a bit more of the context of the First Crusade than I think you'll hear almost anywhere else. I'm always amazed at how... Incorrect. So much of the historical analysis is of the Crusades that's out there. The conventional wisdom is largely nonsense. Uh, But first, please do download the Shields High podcast. It is available on the iTunes app. We are on episode two this week. We'll be having episodes coming out each Monday for the foreseeable future. Uh, Next week is going to be the fall of Constantinople, which is big going to be awesome you're going to definitely going to want to hear that episode and then after that we get into some of our favorites like malta and vienna and lepanto etc it's going to be really really interesting stuff i'm all excited about it i've been telling everybody that the shields high podcast is kind of like my version for those of you who have seen the movie forgetting sarah marshall this is my dracula opera in that movie, the guy who is he is broken up with by his celebrity girlfriend, he's really bummed out. And what, his passion project, he's a musician, but his passion project is a Dracula puppet opera. And he just really wants to do it. Well, this is my Dracula opera. Die, die, I can't. 
And if I see Van Helsing, I'll slay him. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, you've got to see the movie to understand. It sounds like I'm having some kind of an, uh, a breakdown here, but I'm actually just quoting from the movie, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Uh, but do uh, please check out the podcast. I know a lot of you are listening to the show live on radio. You're like, why? Podcast, come on. It's fun. You can listen to it whenever you want, and you can share it with friends, and it stays good for a while or, well, forever, actually. And it's also something where there's information. So it's not just somebody, oh, the, the Constitution and America and everything is falling apart and blah, 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 blah. You know, you listen to the Shields High podcast, you learn some cool stuff. One of the things that I wanted to get across with the First Crusades, well, f- first of all, with the First Crusade, they teach kids in school that the Crusades were just these these barbarians that wanted to destroy this wonderful, peaceful Muslim civilization that, you know, had just been chilling in Palestine and the surrounding areas for, you know, for, for as long as anybody could remember. But the, the truth is that these were all Christian lands we're talking about here, and that will come across on the podcast. What is now Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, all of the above. Of course, Israel, uh, these were areas under Christian control, and before that, areas under the control of the Roman Empire. And when I say Christian control, it was predominantly the Eastern Byzantine Christian Empire that was running the show in these areas, but then the Muslim onslaught came. But this notion that the Crusades were offensive and that jihad is defensive, right? Jihad only happens to defend people. That's complete and utter garbage. And they teach kids this all the time. And there are academics. I'm sure I'd go on TV and they're like, oh, no, jihad is... They'll either tell me it's internal struggling, nah, or they'll tell me that it is only defensive, nah, not true. But also, other than the fact that you have the Crusades not coming out of some vacuum, but actually as a response to repeated efforts by the Islamic forces to try and conquer more and more of Europe. Remember, Charles Martel, they came up through Spain all the way into really the center of France and had to be turned back. And the only thing that kept them from a full-scale invasion through the east was Constantinople. Right? The, the massive city, the fortress of Constantinople, that was the bulwark of Christianity. And so when it became clear that it was threatened and that the surrounding territory had fallen into the hands of the uh, various, well, various caliphates, notably the Seljuk Turks uh, in the 11th century, that's when they had to reach out for help to the Christians. And all this I get into some detail about in, in the podcast, but it's also why we have to talk coming up about the fall of Constantinople, and that will be a, a history deep dive next Monday. Uh, and I think you'll definitely want to hear that will be a first time. We haven't talked about that one before on the show, so I'm looking forward to it. And then I think after that, we're going to do an official Shields High on Malta. And then I got, a, I got a whole lot more planned. So there's that. Also, just the notion that the crusade was such a long shot that you would send at this period in time, we're talking about now 1095, the Council of Claremont, they get into Asia Minor, Constantinople, 1097, 1098, but that you would be able to get a force of roughly 50,000 
and move them over land all the way into hostile territory and deep in into Islamic controlled land and that they could win is astonishing. I mean, this is a period in time when most warfare was conducted based upon agrarian schedules, the harvest season. So you couldn't raise uh, you couldn't levy and, and you couldn't raise a force and use it for more than a certain period of time because people would starve. They'd have to get back to their families, to their farms. So you had a campaign season that was in no way flexible, really. I mean, it, it, you could try if you were going to insist on keeping your army in the field, but they would they would uh, desert. They would mutiny. It was just not they were there were not professional armies year round uh, at the time. And you had a lot of uh, conscripts and people using very basic weapons without much, if anything, in the way of, of training so that they marched from different parts of Europe, but marched from Europe all the way across Eastern Europe, the Straits uh, or the, the um, Dardanelles, right, the, the crossing point, the Bosphorus, where Constantinople is, and then into Asia Minor. It's just an incredible story, an incredible journey, and that they won numerous battles when really, if you look, and you'll get this from the show, they should have been annihilated. I don't mean they should have, isn't that would have been the right thing, but I'm saying they were outmatched and outnumbered numerous times. And it was certainly quite a bit of luck and just sheer will and determination that let them take Jerusalem. So I, I think you'll really enjoy this week's episode of Shields High. And also, those of you who have been sharing it with uh, friends and family, I can't thank you enough. Uh, we did tens of thousands of downloads of the first episode. I can tell you that. Um, I don't want to give you an exact number yet because it's still it's still happening. But we we are doing very well on that podcast because of all of you. So those of you who haven't listened, please do. And those of you who are passing around the word, I really do uh, thank you for that. It means a lot. And I spent my whole weekend working on this thing. I mean, I, this is all I did. It's and it's only about thirty five forty minutes long. But to script it and audio edit it and just do this properly, do the research is it's a labor of love, like I said. So please do Shields High on iTunes, also on the iHeart app. You can subscribe on iTunes and a new episode out today and another one coming up next week. We'll be back with some Team Buck Roll Call. Stay right there. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for some Team Buck Roll Call. Love getting to hear from all of you. Uh, went through as many messages as I could. I think I'm almost caught up in the inbox on Facebook for like the last week or so. So that's that's good. That's, uh, that's what happens when you spend the whole weekend. Miss Molly's in Hawaii. Uh, fortunately, there's no actual ballistic missile issue, but she's in Hawaii. So that means this past weekend I just got to, uh, well, study and eat a lot. So that was what I did. I had that going for me, which is nice. But I also got a chance to catch up on your messages. If you want to send me your thoughts, uh, you can at Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or also OfficialTeamBuck at gmail.com. So with all that, let's get into it, shall we? Let's see what we, let's see what we got. First one up this week in Team Buck Roll Call, An, uh, Atanasio. He writes, hey, man. Saw you on Fox News Channel. Uh, greetings from Spain. God bless America. Well, Atanasio, uh, 
¿Cómo está? And uh, that's about as much Spanish as I speak. Hope you're doing well. Thank you for the kind message. Nice that we've got some Team Buck Spain in effect this week. Uh, we got Greg up next. Buck, it's really great seeing you on Fox from time to time. I was actually on twice today. Um, retiring on February 28th, brother. If I get up to the city, do you have a moment to get a beer? Rangers lead the way, shields high. Well, Greg, uh, I will respond here. I, I may not be in the city that week, but I will let you know, and uh, maybe we can have you swing by the hut and uh, meet everybody here, but I will have the team respond ASAP. All right, and uh, thank you for your service, sir. Uh, next up this week, we or this week, I keep saying this week, today, pardon me. I know, it's Martin Luther King Day. It's a holiday, and I am uh, not... Not always registering that because I have to be at work. AJ, uh, with the following, your show's the best. I've been listening since before the America Now broadcast. When I find you, I found you after you subbed in for Rush Limbaugh. I listen by podcast and it gets me through my daily workout. Um, I sometimes struggle with the volume levels during the show. Thanks and shields high, AJ. It's weird with podcast volume stuff. A lot of people in the past have told me they've had an issue with with that but i we, we look at it here i have the tech team check it out and it is uh how do i say it uh individual based it depends on someone's gear and what they've got going on so it's a little bit different there um but i will take a look again because i always do dustin uh hey buck i just finished the first episode of shields high and i loved it can't wait to share it with my son once he's older. Hope it will inspire him to search out and understand the truth of history for himself as he gets older. Well, Dustin, thank you very much for your kind note. Uh, we've also got one in here from Adam who writes, CRISPR could cure everything in response to your rant on infections. Adam, I don't know what that means, but I will look into it. I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with CRISPR, so I'll have to look at it. And thank you for uh, bringing it to my attention. All right, we have Lauren, who writes in. Oh wow, this is uh, this is a long one. Buck, I just listened to history podcast and actually liked it, which is saying something because I've never been interested in history. So thank you for piquing my interest. I also have a random question about the Harry Potter storyline. Have you read all the books or seen all the movies? I was really confused to find out that the author is a progressive, because when I read the books, I thought for sure the author must be a conservative. I saw so many parallels in the storyline. I saw the main characters in Dumbledore to be the conservatives who are willing to acknowledge that evils exist, call it by name, and fight back against it. I saw the Ministry of Magic as the leftist bureaucracy, who pretend evil doesn't exist, don't want to give students the tools to fight it, want them to be, in effect, unarmed. And I saw members in that bureaucracy as full-blown totalitarians. Wow, this is some, like, next-level Harry Potter analysis here, folks. So I was curious if I'm the only one who saw this angle of the books. Would be interested to hear your take on it if you have time to get through the series. Well, Lauren, thank you for your very kind note. Uh, I have never read a Harry Potter book, and I have, I think, I think in college... A uh, a date made me go to a Harry Potter movie once. I do not really remember it. I mean, I'm obviously familiar with Harry Potter, but I haven't. I don't think I've ever sat through an entire uh, episode, or not episode, an entire uh, film with Harry Potter as the subject matter. So I can't give you any good analysis on that. 
But you did get it read on air for a national coast to coast radio audience. So that's that's kind of cool. You know what I mean? Uh, let's see what else we got here. Uh, friendly OSS message for your team, Buck. Your bumpers, this is from Jim, are coming in hot. Just thought you guys would want some pro- uh, professional technical insight to your brilliant show. Great job. Uh, okay, Jim, we'll check out the bumpers. I don't know. I, I don't need. I. That's a little bit beyond my uh, my skill set here in terms of what we do technically. Um, Courtney writes in with the following: Buck, I've quickly become a huge fan and listen to your podcast daily on my commute to work. Your show is the best thing I got out of my last relationship. <laughs> Uh, but I digress. I work in healthcare and have seen firsthand the gradual decline in the healthcare system since I graduated in 2008. Often, those with the best healthcare benefits are those who have barely ever contributed to society. They are also often the most non-compliant. For example, I had a patient with uh, laryng- laryngeal cancer uh, and a tracheostomy who was smoking through his stoma four to five times a day while his insurance company was paying for expensive chemotherapy and radiation treatments. It just doesn't make sense. I'd love to hear more on your take regarding the health care and how we can better improve the system. Socialized health care is not the answer, and it truly scares me that anyone could think that's a viable solution. Thanks, Courtney. Uh, well, Courtney, first of all, I'm so glad you uh, enjoy the podcast, and then I get to keep you company on your way to work on your commute, so uh, I am honored. And healthcare is going to be, as it always is, a big topic of political debate and discussion. I'd love to see the GOP actually do something this year that's worthwhile on healthcare. I, I, I'm a little disappointed at what we've seen so far from this GOP Congress. Obviously, uh, on healthcare and, and repeal and replace of Obamacare. The, the reality is that we have to, to to get to where we want to be as conservatives with healthcare. We would have to do things that would be seen by many as radical uh, because right now having any actual skin in the game so to speak to care where your dollars go those are all differences those are all uh, th- that's not the case with our current health care system our system right now is based on health care is kind of a right how much health care is a political decision and somebody else will always pay for it and it's just not the way that it is supposed to be and that's why I think we have a lot of Folks with very frustrating, uh, very frustrating circumstances. And it's also a situation where or it's also the only industry I can think of where you don't know what the price is. The price changes all the time. And price sensitivity is not a part of the healthcare purchasing process. So I, I got a lot of thoughts on healthcare, but they'll be uh, coming out in bits and pieces throughout the year as we uh, follow it in the news cycle. So uh, tomorrow I'll try to get some of the Team Buck emails going here. So that will be uh, coming up for us next, uh, or tomorrow at least. And uh, thank you again for all the kind words about the History Show. I'm going to keep it going. As long as you keep listening, passing it around, we'll, we'll keep it going. So thank you for that. Uh, have a very happy and uh, restful rest of your Martin Luther King holiday. And tomorrow I'm sure it's going to be uh, very interesting with the possibility of that government shutdown in a few days. Lots of stuff to, lots of stuff to chat about. So uh, do check out all the latest on iTunes for this show and Shields High. And until tomorrow, Shields High.